This is hypnotherapist John Morgan, and welcome to Inside Out, my YouTube channel created for the sole purpose of taking you inside where all your creative resources reside and coming out with new perspectives, creative ideas, and new constructive behaviors. Today, I'm going to offer you what I call a waking meditation on the use of words and the effect they have on you and others. A waking meditation is one where you keep your eyes open and listen attentively with your intellect versus a guided meditation where you normally close your eyes and allow your mind to relax. This is one of those rare times you're going to hear me request that you put your thinking caps on. We all use words to communicate, whether verbally, digitally, or in writing, and words have different meanings to different people, mainly because many words are nonspecific and convey many meanings. I call these nonspecific words fluff. F-L-U-F-F. Fluff. Fluffy language is nonspecific language and is subject to misinterpretation. Reminds me of a story. I was once in a manager's meeting and the head of our management team said that we had to get to work on an important project. He laid out the project and what was needed to be done to complete it. His directive to us was, we've got to get going on this soon. And then he ended the meeting. What's wrong with this picture? I had a zillion unanswered questions in my head. What does get going on this mean? Who is to do what and when? And what specifically do you mean by soon? These types of questions are fluff busters and will garner more specific answers. Years ago, I wrote the following to illustrate the deadly side of fluff. Revisionist historians tell a fabulous story about the massacre Alfred Lloyd Tennyson wrote about in his poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. In this poem, we read about 600 soldiers riding into the Valley of Death. This death ride took place during the Crimean War. The historians tell us a messenger approached the commanding officer of the 600 and delivered this message, Advance to the Front. The officer dutifully led his troops to the front, and they were all killed. Lord Tennyson's poem recorded the blunders of the Battle of Balaclava in 1854 for future generations. This officer was guilty of falling victim to fluff, and then to the enemy. There happened to be three fronts. He never took the time to ask the messenger, which specific front? He knew there were three fronts. The officer owed it to himself and his men to break down the word front. He assumed that he knew where to advance and paid with his and his soldiers' lives. Let's remember the messenger was also a less-than-efficient communicator. Being nonspecific in serious situations is dereliction of duty and can be deadly. So for specificity's sake, let me give fluff a more concrete definition. Fluff is something you can't put into a wheelbarrow. For example, someone may say that a specific athlete lacks desire. You cannot put desire in a wheelbarrow. If you say, I'm feeling neglected, you can't put neglected in a wheelbarrow. Nor can you put depression, success, failure, or confidence in a wheelbarrow. All those words have too many different meanings to too many different folks. Fluff busting is a very useful practice to learn. You reach more common ground when you find out what specific meaning a word has for someone else. Now, let me just say that casual conversations are loaded with fluff. 
and there's no reason to request more specificity in these chinwags. If you're just chewing the fat with someone, fluff away. But if you need others to comprehend what you're saying, or vice versa, make sure to bust the fluff. When you hear fluff, and it's necessary to get more precise information, make sure to have the, what specifically do you mean by that, question handy. Now that we have a handle on what fluff is, let's explore two everyday words we use that create more distance in communication. The words are right and wrong. If there are two words that detract from communication more than these two, I haven't heard them yet. My internet persona, the grasshopper, had this to say on the topic. I'm right is an invitation to fight. When we display the attitude or position of being right, we invariably make the person, persons on the other end, wrong. Wrong is an experience that none of us wants for ourselves. It's too painful. But when we attempt to assign wrong to someone else, they don't want it either. And war breaks out. A long time ago, I was introduced to substitute words for right and wrong. They are accurate and inaccurate. Say the following two statements aloud and sense for yourself if one feels better or worse. You are wrong. I believe your information is inaccurate. My guess is one lands more softly than the other and promotes further conversation, where the other one draws a line in the sand. If you put the onus on the information rather than the person, you'll avoid unnecessary standoffs. Get yourself into the habit of saying you have a preference for something instead of taking a cultural position of right or wrong. It immediately tells people you are not arguing the merits of right or wrong, and it also personalizes the preference. You may have a specific way of doing things that other people do much differently. Let's pretend you have a specific idea about how to raise children. You instinctively know other people have other ideas. If you declare you have the right way or the best way to bring up children, you're going to set up a polarity response with many folks. Notice what happens if you say you have a preference for bringing up your children the way you do. This gives credence to other ways of doing things without you having to defend being right. Having a preference will give you more flexibility without having to abandon or defend your way of doing things. Being more flexible is a catalyst to getting your point recognized. Now let me end this section with another grasshopper quote. Some people would rather be right than happy. And preferring to be right, they are left out. Next up, a word that has no action attached to it. It's a made-up word that we've learned to excuse our behavior. Try is a word that is productive to update. Try does not exist in nature. It is a totally intellectual label that does not match up with any action. Deer don't try to stand up. A young, feeble deer making some sort of an effort to get to its feet is not trying. The fawn either gets up or it doesn't. A more accurate statement on its effort is that it's half standing up. The key here is the effort expended. Try is an excuse word because we've been conditioned to it that way. Think back to toilet training as an example. If you wet your pants and your parent was admonishing you for doing so, you may have uttered, I tried to make it to the bathroom, mommy. 
You didn't make any effort whatsoever, but you learned the word try would absolve you from any responsibility. Put this on an adult level. You run into an old acquaintance. You chat for a bit, and one of you says, let's try and get together. Then you go your separate ways. What does that mean? Does it mean that each of you will check your appointment schedules and come up with a common date? Does it mean you will call the other person at noon tomorrow to let them know the time and place? Or does it mean you don't want to get together at all and are using try as the escape word? The biggest difficulty with using try is that no effort is actually made. The underlying idea is that if you come up with an acceptable enough reason, it will explain your behavior. Armed with that knowledge, we spend most of our life looking for reasons to defend our behavior rather than outgrow it. Try is a time-tested defense, and it keeps us in place. Make an effort is a phrase that suggests to your mind that you will do something. The word try anchors you through subconscious references to excuses and inactivity. The British have an action phrase that is a prescription for outgrowing try. They say, let's give it a go. And now let's end this waking meditation with a phrase that is a soft piece of magic. Start using this phrase and you'll stop holding yourself in place. The phrase is, in the past. Some words needlessly hold lasting change at arm's length. Suppose you say you are shy, not artistic, clumsy, or not very smart. These are expressions that hold you in place. I'm not for a moment suggesting that you say an affirmation like, I am artistic. I believe a part of your mind knows that's not accurate. If you believe you are not artistic and you want to change your belief, a place to start is in the past. In the past is a phrase that works its magic when continually applied. If it's your habit to say, I'm not very artistic, say something like this instead. In the past, I haven't been very artistic. The consistent referencing of the observation as in the past is what is known as a pattern interrupt. When you use this phrase, you're interrupting your mindset of being stuck. In the past sets the stage for your mind to come up with additional options that will move you forward and have new learning make its debut. So let's explore how using the phrase in the past with another word leads to progress instead of regression. Many people hold their state of health in place with words. A destructive label is the word my. My arthritis won't allow me to play tennis anymore. My diabetes leaves me with little energy. Two things that will give you more power immediately are, one, drop the word my from any disease process, two, apply in the past to any limitation you ascribe to that disease. For example, in the past, arthritis has kept me from playing tennis. In the past, diabetes has caused me to feel less energetic. My is a word to which we've been conditioned. That means ownership. There is nothing inappropriate about ownership. But who the heck wants to own arthritis? I'm not suggesting this shift in language will make arthritis or diabetes disappear. What I'm suggesting is, if you refer to it in the past and remove the ownership, you may just find your situation more palatable. Better yet, if there is a way your mind can help you ease or put this disease behind you, this new language will facilitate the process. If you label yourself as shy, 
give this phrase a go. In the past, shyness has prevented me from showing my stuff. Here's another example. In the past, the fear of speaking in front of people has kept me and my helpful information away from public view. There are plenty of other right and wrong words I could share with you, but give these few a go and witness your communication and learning skills rapidly grow. All the best, John.